Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. There is something called in hermeneutics, exegesis, or where, where you approach the Scriptures in order to back up what you believe, rather than objectively moving towards them. And our desire is to know what the Bible says so that we can know what to believe because it is our authority. And it is that by which we compare it to truth. Now, if you're here with us for the today for the first time, really glad that you're here. This is also a podcast. You can subscribe anywhere that you get your podcast from. You're gonna get our full length teachings. You're gonna get our hot topics that we release every week. And you're also going to get these Q and A's. So you'll be able to listen to them in their leisure. I appreciate those of you who are submitting questions and we have our first question today, which is, what is the difference between grace and mercy? And I find that people struggle with these from time to time. And by introducing a third word into these two, we really get an idea as to what we're seeing with grace, mercy, and justice. And all of them can be legal terms. So when a judge gives someone mercy, He's giving them something that they don't deserve. They deserve justice. But a judge instead shows mercy by withholding the justice. Now, sometimes we say, I want justice. I, want, I just want what God owes me. I just want justice. And I would say, if you say that, to be very careful. Because uh, what you deserve is, is not the same as what you think justice is. What I want from God is mercy. I want God to show me mercy. And the Bible does say, the mercy you show is the mercy that you're going to receive. If you're a massively judgmental person, if you're always talking bad about people around you, the Bible says you will be judged by your own words. And so God will show you the same mercy that you give out. Therefore, I wanna be a merciful person. I wanna believe the best in people when I can. Sometimes it's obvious that you can't believe the best, that you can't because it's just not true. It becomes obvious. But you want to give them as much leeway as you possibly can and show as much mercy to individuals as you can. So mercy is when you don't get what you deserve in a bad way. When a, if, if someone is tried in a courtroom and the judge shows them mercy and could give them a maximum of 15 years, but instead gives them five years, that's mercy. The Bible says of God's mercy that it is new every morning. We are partakers of his mercy. Now, grace is entirely different than that. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. It's like the opposite of mercy. You're getting what you don't deserve. You, you don't deserve God's goodness, eternal life, uh, and he's chosen to give it to those who believe. So God wants to give his grace to those who would believe in his name. The Bible says we are, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest anyone should boast. So when I have faith to believe what God says, and I have enough faith to do the things that God is saying to do, I'm trusting in him, I'm believing in him, then I'm given his grace and this is undeserved. It's like if we were in a courtroom and we owed a huge fine, but the judge said, my son knows you, 
and paid the fine for you. And so you're free to go. We don't owe anything. The fine has been paid for us by the judge's son. That's grace. And when we are gracious to someone, not only are we not giving them what we deserve, but we're going all the way to give them something. Grace is, we, we call it undeserved favor. So mercy is when I withhold something that I, I could have brought justice, I could have, but I instead I was merciful to that person. Grace is when I actually give to that person something they do not deserve. And we want God's grace in our lives. We want God giving us what we don't deserve. And we want to be a blessing to as many people as we can wherever we go. This would be a great motto to live by. Be a blessing to people everywhere you go. Bless those that serve you at your table. Don't make their day more difficult. Be merciful to them, even be gracious to them, even tip them above what, what they would normally think. Be that kind of person that would show grace and mercy everywhere you go. You don't want to be the person who hangs on to justice. This is what they deserve. They did that to me. They should get what they deserve. That's neither showing grace nor mercy. Now, years ago, we had two Jack Russell Terriers uh, as puppies, and we named them Grace and Mercy. They were sisters, and they fought mercilessly, ironically. Um, and we had to get rid of one of them because Grace and Mercy didn't get along. But in the real world, Grace and Mercy does get along. And God expects us to be merciful because mercy has been given to us. And we want to be gracious because grace has been given to us. And it's by those very means that we are saved. Justice, mercy, and grace, they're all related and help us understand what those exact meanings are. All right, so it's good to see you guys here. Um, it's uh, got logged on. And if you have any questions, then you can write the word question down and then you can um, write out your question and then reread it a couple times. Make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit uh, your question. All right, so uh, welcome. If you're here for the very first time, good to have you. So we have our first question from Fact Check These Hands. Good to see you, Fact Check These Hands. Um, they say, I found church, uh, a church plant, a very small congregation that's Reformed Baptist has everything I'm looking for in a church except the reform part. We agree on essentials. Please advise. All right. So, yeah, the, the reformed. Okay. So they're going to see themselves in the bigger picture as reformed. All right. Fact check these hands. Um, so what they're going to see is that Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 thesis on the wall, at the church at Wickenburg, and he saw all the corruption at that time in the Catholic Church, and he was fighting against it. Remember, Martin Luther was a monk, and he set out to reform and came up with the five solas, and sola scriptura was one of them, the scriptures and the scriptures alone, and we would agree with that aspect of reformed. Now, where I think reform didn't go far enough is that they never got to reforming eschatology, so today, Reformed still believe the things that the Catholic Church taught about eschatology back in their day. I think since then, eschatology has been Reformed. That is, we believe that Jesus is going to come back. We believe that there is a literal tribulation period, that the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. This fits to what the Bible says literally. There is a time coming that is worse than anything this world has ever seen or is ever going to see. Now, the other aspect of Reformed comes from John Calvin's reading of Augustine. 
And Augustine was the first one to come up with the idea of limited atonement and irresistible grace that God determines everything. That was really the major key, the major driver in Augustine's life was determinism, that God determines everything, that God doesn't give man free will, that God doesn't give man choice. We would, and I, I assume because you're asking this, fact check these hands, that you would disagree with that that we believe that God has given man free will. Our God is sovereign. They're gonna attack They're gonna attack me and say that I don't understand sovereignty and I don't understand grace. But I assure you, which all they're doing is putting a new definition to the word sovereignty and grace. They're saying that God's sovereignty means he sends people to hell he wants to. And in reality, that's true, but that's not what they mean. They mean that God, they mean that God predetermined some for whatever his reasons were, not hate, just loving some and not loving and hating others, or I, I wanna be careful not to put words, words in their mouth because in the reformed world, there are all these different groups that believe. And so if I were to say what they believe, they believe that God unilaterally chose for his own reasons, some to be vessels of honor and some to be vessels of dishonor. And that is irresistible grace and limited atonement. Limited atonement cannot be defended in the scriptures. And irresistible grace is not the definition of grace. They say we don't like grace because God's been gracious to some by choosing them. But their irresistible grace has people condemned unilaterally by God, never given a choice. They never could believe. That is problematic theologically because if a person never could believe, how can you judge that person? And I realize that they have these doctrines that will say, well, they wanted to sin, therefore they're judged for them because they wanted to sin. Yeah, but they wanted to sin because God determined them to sin. So there's problems in it. Do I think that Reformed Baptists, Reformed Presbyterians are saved? Yes. I think they're brothers in Christ. Do I think that you can learn and grow there? Um, fact check these hands, yes. I believe that you can learn and you can grow there. I think you've gotta be careful because these doctrines do shape the way that you start to think. You start to think, well, people are gonna be saved or lost. So, you know, I don't really have to evangelize. I realize that reformers have had their great evangelists of their day, but we're talking about overall. Another thing that reformers often do, our reformed theology often does, is just try to persuade people they're right. Instead of going into an evangelism, they seem to be just set on, on wanting to argue about them being right and everybody else being wrong. And there's plenty that's said about this. And if you would like more information, fact check these hands, on Calvinism, determinism, reformed theology, then I would suggest, um, Leighton Flowers YouTube page, um, Soteriology 101. It's very good. He's gonna give you a lot of information. Um, do I think you shouldn't go to the church? I, I don't think that's a reason not to go, but I think I'm personally, I would look for another church. That's not saying God doesn't have you there, God doesn't want you there, because I don't know any of that. All I know is that I would look for another church uh, instead of being at a reformed church. If that's if that's all I could go, then I'd be there because I believe that they're brothers and sisters in Christ and don't wanna throw them out of the church. All right, so I hope that helps. 
okay? And there are some differences, by the way, between Reformed Baptists and Reformed um, uh, Presbyterians. There's even differences in Presbyterians that are Reformed and differences between Baptists that are Reformed. So to some degree, you've got to know which group you're dealing with. All right, so thank you for your question. I appreciate it. Uh, we have our question from the returning psych man with us. Psych man says the violence is taken by force, the kingdom by force. The violent harpazo, it, um, it, it's by harpazo, the Greek harpazo, okay? That's the rapture word, yeah. So, uh, Sir Dude Robert, always a pleasure. All right, so the violent take it by force. The violent there is harpazo, which is interesting to be snatched away. So when you're reading it, as it says it, the, so the snatched away, take it by force. Yeah, so I, I think that that would end up supporting Psych Man, the view we talked about last week, that Jesus was using an analogy that a lot of people were rushing into the kingdom of God and they were seizing it and they had to be serious about seizing it. And he used the word violence um, because the they were the ones who were seizing or taking the kingdom of God instead of somebody entering in that is ungodly, which is a view that some have, but I don't think has a tremendous amount of validity. For those of you who are listening to, the, for the, listening to this for the first time, uh, we answered the question last time where Jesus talking about John the Baptist says, from John the Baptist until this time, the violent, um, the kingdom of God has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Um, interesting that it is the word harpazo, which is the gathering together out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Those who are alive uh, and remain will be caught up. That word for caught up is harpazo, and that's what Psych Man is pointing out. As I said, it makes it interesting, and I think comes back to support the view that we believed that it supported, uh, which is that this is an analogy that a lot of people were coming into the kingdom of God and you got to kind of make a decision to come into the kingdom of God. You got to kind of snatch it. You got to kind of take it. And um, maybe, maybe even today, you've got to you got to take the kingdom of God. You can't kind of meander your way in. You've got to take it. You got to snatch it up. You got to say, "I want it. I want to follow Him. I want to live for Him." Um, I don't believe that God rewards those who casually seek Him, and that may very well be the meaning of the violent take it by force. Um, especially if it is the word harpazo. I'd like to just take a moment to look up my, in my concordance here, uh, Matthew, let me get there, Matthew eleven twelve. 12. Uh, I want to know what the word there, I know it's harpazo, psych man, but I want to know what the word there, well, I'm in Genesis, let me go back to Matthew. I want to know what the word there, the violent take it by force is, if that's connected to harpazo. So this is the kingdom of God suffers violence. I'm going to take it that that's the harpazo, and then the violent take it by force. So let me get to 11 and then we go to 12. All right. And I'll put this up on the screen for you too when I get there. All right. So we're here now. So I'll put it up on the screen for you. All right. So here it says, um, for the days of John the Baptist until now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. So let's go ahead and click on that violence there. And that is the word, did I get the right word? Bezo, to force to crowd oneself or to be seized, to press press, or to suffer violence. All right, then let's go look at the next word. Um, 
that suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Uh, a forcer, the violent. I think this is helping a lot. I don't see the word harpazo for the days um, till John Chantel, the kingdom of have suffered violence. Let's check that word. Bezos, okay. And the violent take it by force. All right, so I'm just not seeing the word harpazo here. Um, among you were born of women, John the Baptist, and then the kingdom. And the days of John the Baptist, son of now, the kingdom has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. All right, so I'm not seeing that connection with that word, but I, I do think that the word study has helped us here. Because again, if you just read that, suffered violence, um, it is bidzo, uh, which is to crowd oneself, to be seized, to press, to suffer. So pressing in. Now I understand why some of the commentators, uh, I mean, some um, uh, versions of the Bible have used the word pressed or a form of it here. So they're kind of saying, in the days from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has um, suffered um, crowding in and they've taken it by force. So there, there's some that declare it that way. So I kind of get that idea. All right, so thanks, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Um, so um, yeah, I would love to, to see, to know what reference you had for Harpazo. Uh, is that, um, so what we're looking at in the King James is not, there may be, and what might be happening here, just so you know, is the King James and the New King James is taken from a certain set of manuscripts. And there are other manuscripts as well that have been discovered since then, or were old manuscripts that were not part of what the New King James or King James was taken from. And so there may be another word that would be a variant in the manuscripts that's connected to it. So I would love to find out how, what, why there is this discrepancy between what, what Psychman found as Harpazo and what is in the King James Bible as to press in or to take by force. All right. So thank you very much, Psychman. I appreciate that. Um, so we have a question from Jeffrey. Um, all right. So Jeffrey says, uh, the nail in the hands of the shroud is held true by Catholicism. Shroud is one long piece, 14 by 31. I think, um, I think, how's the, how does John 9, 5, and 7 affect its authenticity? And the nails located in John 20, 21, 25, and 27. So I think that hands, well, I mean, you know what, let's just do it. Let's just do a little bit of a word study here. So the Shroud of Turin, uh, just for again, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Shroud of Turin is this burial cloth that has the image of a crucified man on it. It was first dated, when science tried to date it and see if it was authentic, it showed up 1,300 years ago. It was first dated to be 1,300 years ago. But then they found out that that dating was a patch. And when they redated it, they got that it was very plausible that it was 2,000 years ago, maybe even as old as 3,000 years ago. It also had pollen on it from Jerusalem and the image, we cannot see how the image was created today. Um, the threads, each of the threads has a thousand, I don't know, for lack of a better word, sub-threads on it. And only two or three of the threads are dyed in each of the thread. So it couldn't be any kind of, of paint, powder, 
we don't know how they made the mark, the, the, the actual picture that is on the shroud. There's also blood on the shroud that has been tested and found out to be blood. Now, is this authentic? And Dr. Gary Habermas has not come out and said it's 100% authentic, but he's come out to lean towards it being authentic. So we want to uh, take a look here, Jeffrey, at these verses that you're talking about to see how they apply, because obviously, right, the scripture is our authority. So the first place that we want to go is to the book of John. We want to go to John 20, verses uh John 20, verses 5 and 7. So we're going to go there, John 20, we'll go to verses 5 and 7. I'm going to go there in the King James Version, because that's my, uh, that is the one that I can do my word study on. All right, so we go to verse 5, and verse 5 says, Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went in to the sepulchre to see the linen cloths lie, and the napkin that was about his head not lying on the linen cloths, but wrapped around it in a place by itself. So then let's take a look at what linen cloths. So that's plural, not one, one not one wrapping, okay? Um, and we'll talk about how this might be okay to say that. So uh, first of all, um, following in the sculpture, okay, verse five, the linen cloths. I'm just gonna click on cloths here. And we're going to go to this one here. And so this is uh, the word othani, othan, othi, othanon, othanon, persuaded a linen um, bandage, linen cloths. So if they're going to wrap the body with one giant linen, would they have had wrappings that go around it as well to hold it in place? And it doesn't say anything about the plural here. It's neutered, neither male nor female. That's what we know. Um, and I don't know enough about um, Greek to be able to determine that. So I don't know. I, I am interested. Let's just take a look at these other verses you're talking about. The nails and the location of his hands, John 20, 2020. All right. So uh, we were there. Hold on. So John 20, 20. Okay. And here it says, and when he had said, when he had said, he showed him his hands and his side. So let's just take a look at his hands here. And it would be here. And perhaps from the base, it's a sense, it's um, the idea of hollowness, the hand, or figuratively, especially a hand. So the wrist here could be considered to be part of the hand. And many believe that that is where someone would be crucified at. What I would like to do now is to go uh, to my typical Bible um, commentary here to pull up John. Sorry to do this while you guys are. I don't want to make you dizzy. If you're watching it going, oh, that's not good. Okay, John 20. We're going to go to verse 5 to start. And just see the way a couple of different uh, versions put it, okay? So let's see what it says here. It says, stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in, and Simon Peter followed him and went in the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, okay? So then we're going to go, that's the New King James. I want to go to the NASB, verse 5. 
And he stooped out and looked and saw the linen wrappings lying there. Um, however, he did not go in. Simon Peter came, followed him, and looked and saw the wrappings. Um, so, yeah, when, when, when I, how I've always thought about this, uh, Jeffrey, is that they kind of wrapped them like mummies. They had strips that they wrapped them in. But when you go back and you look at the way they buried people in their day, it seems it was much more like the Shroud of Turin. They would wrap them in this shroud and then they would wrap them up. And maybe the red are linen clothes. I don't know that this can be conclusive in one way or another. Um, there, there would it would be great if we could find someone who's an expert on first century Jewish burial. That's where we would really get our answer in here. Um, I don't know that the trout of Turin being true or false will not affect our faith at all. So I don't know that we should put our trust in those kind of things at all. It is interesting that Dr. Gary Habermas has been spending some time on this, and um, we're going to have him at our conference uh, here in March, and I'll be able to ask him specific questions about this. And if there's anybody who would know, I bet it's Gary Habermas who would know. So I'm going to look forward to asking him these questions, uh, Jeffrey. So stay tuned, all right, through March, um, and I'll see if I can get you an answer to that. All right. So thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Um, and I take it, you know, if the Shroud of Turin were true or not, it wouldn't change us anything for us. We already believe that Jesus died on the cross. And any external evidence that would come along that would say something else would not change for us the way that we feel about any of those things. All right. So we have Jari with us today. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, did Pharaoh drown with his army as well, or was it just the army in Exodus 15, 19? I have even heard that a lot of the city of Egypt went into the sea, but that's speculative, thanks. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know. Does Exodus 15, 19 say that it was Pharaoh? Um, yeah, I don't know, Jari. I, I think I'm not going to be able to give you an answer to that. Let's just go to Exodus 15 and see if we can, um, 15, 19, and see if we can see it from the text. Other than that, I don't know. You know, the Bible says the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. And God did not give us all of the details. And the last thing that we want to do is speculate on the details. So I'll go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you again. So here it says, uh, this is Exodus uh, 15, 19. For the horses of Pharaoh and the chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam and the prophetess Aaron's sister also took um, tambourines in her hand and, um, and started dancing. And here's the song, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and went out into the wilderness of Shur. So according to that, I don't find anything um, Here's how I would approach it. And just so you know, uh, Jari, uh, if the Bible doesn't say that Pharaoh was drowned in the sea, then I would never say that Pharaoh was drowned in the sea. Again, I'm looking to not infer things on the text. And if I do that consistently, now if there is a text that says that Pharaoh drowned in the sea and I'm just not aware of it right now, well then great. 
I'll change my mind and I'll talk about it. But I think that this is a much larger principle. This issue doesn't really matter. Was Pharaoh drowned in the sea or not? Well, we don't know. And if he was, the Bible says so great. If he wasn't, then great too. Doesn't make that much of a difference. However, there are other passages that if we start inferring things on that we don't have the evidence for, we could start to change the meaning of what's being said there. So we don't want to add to God's word and we don't want to remove from God's word. Remember the warning in the book of Revelation, don't add or remove anything to this book. And we want to make a habit of making sure that we don't add or remove anything. It's one of the reasons I'm so hesitant to answer hypothetical questions uh, because I don't want to put any words into God's mouth. And in my teaching, I'm very careful as well that I don't add anything to what God has said. And if I do to try to come back and correct that. All right, so we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you with us again. Albert says, hello, Pastor. Peter was bold, yet that boldness was a weakness at times. Do you find that often our greatest spiritual gifts can also be areas of great struggle? Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate that. So yeah, Peter was bold and it led him to trying to defend the Lord and that led him to the denial of Christ. I do know this, the Bible says that in our weaknesses, God is strong. That um, when you feel weak and when you're weak, that God can be, be used out of strength. Uh, and it says that in Hebrews and a couple of other places. Um, do I find that in my strength there can be weakness? And I'll tell you yes, and I'll tell you why. Because I believe that in my strengths, I generally will feel okay or maybe lean on my strengths or maybe even be arrogant about my strengths because I've got this strength in my life and I'm not going to do that. Peter was like, I won't, I'll die for you. And he was willing to die for him, right? But that ended up being a great weakness for him. So I think that strengths in our own personal life can be weaknesses if we lean on our own strength. But if we don't lean on our own strength, but we lean on the strength of God, then our weaknesses become strong and God's able to take advantage of our strengths as well. All right. So thank you, Albert. I, I appreciate that. And good to see you here. All right. And let's see, I'm just going to go ahead and see if I can find another question here. We have a question from Tim. Tim says, hi, pastor. Hi, Tim. Uh, my wife recently went to the Lord after going through lung cancer. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Tim. I'm doing okay, but people tell me I should do a grief counseling. I hesitate to do it, but wanted to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Tim. I think I can really help you with this. Um, so I lost my late wife, Lisa, to lung cancer in 2012, in, in December 15th, on December 15th of 2012. She was diagnosed in September 11th um, of 2011 and then passed away a little over a year later. And um, there's a lot of difficulties with it. I'm sure that you went through a lot in the doctor's visits and all of those things. I found myself going through grief and I went through the basic aspects of grief. I mean, and I don't think grief, the, the steps of grief are not like steps, steps that you go down. I'm angry first and then I'm, uh, you know, then I, uh, I, I feel I'm, you know, I'm angry at doctors or I feel I'm, I, there's just not the particular steps. They come at different orders and in different times. And I think 
that grief counseling can be very helpful. Now, we do a grief group at our church that meets every so often. And um, I did a study, and maybe you can start by listening to those studies if you're interested in it. I've got long-form studies and short-form studies on how to overcome grief. And the in the short hot topics, there's how to help someone who's grieving, and then there's how to handle grieving. And this comes from my own experiences of going through grief myself. And I go into great detail on, on what you should do. And then I have uh, a long form teaching on it. And then I also was a guest, guest speaker at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque. And I did a teaching there on grief. And you can go to their website or onto their YouTube page. You can look up Robert Furrow, Calvary Albuquerque, and it will come up and you'll see that full teaching there on grief as well. And I think it could be helpful. So I do, I do like the idea of going and talking to someone about grief. There's a couple of huge mistakes that are made when people are grieving. Number one, they want the pain to stop. And so they mask that pain. They can do it a couple of different ways. They could do it with a substance that they could start to abuse, or they could do it with a relationship. And oftentimes you see someone in a relationship way too soon after they lose someone. Sometimes there's people who will never get in a relationship, but sometimes they'll get in way too soon. Well, why? Because when you get in a new relationship, there are those endorphins that hit and it can mask the feelings you go through, but you will eventually go through the grief. Those endorphins will leave in that new relationship and you will go through the grief and it may just make the relationship that you're in now unhealthy. Instead of saying, let's wait and take time to make sure um, that we're going through it. So I'm really sorry, Tim, to hear that you're going through this. Um, may the Lord comfort you in the midst of it. Um, I'm a believer that you go, you go through grief and that you move forward in life. You don't go through grief and move on. No, you move forward. Everything that you've experienced and gone through has become a part of you. And now you take that with you and you can now minister to those who are struggling with some of the same things that you're ministering to. So I do think that grief counseling could be a great thing for you to go through. Doesn't mean that you can't go through without it, right? The Bible doesn't say to go get it, but I think it can be very helpful. And as I said, our grief group that we do at the church, I've had people going through it that have come and told me, I listened to your teaching and what they say in the grief group, and they use a whole, they don't use my teachings to, to come up with their material. They use material that they put together tell people through grief and they'll come and say the exact same things you talked about were the same things that we talk about as we get together with these groups. So it can be helpful. If I were talking with you, Tim, and could ask you questions, I would ask how you're doing, um, what are your up and downs like? So I would ask you some questions to help determine whether or not you should go to a grief counselor. Um, certainly you don't have to, can be helpful. And I don't know if you're struggling now, and maybe because people have suggested you go, you are struggling. So I hope that's helpful. If not, you can ask a follow-up question and maybe I can get a little bit more detailed with that. All right. So um, appreciate your question, Tim, and we'll be praying for you as you struggle, um, as you go through this time of grief. All right. So in um, fact, check this hand says, we're talking about the Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, thanks. Uh, the church is all about evangelism, and they haven't mentioned any Calvinist stuff yet in the sermons. 
So um, I'll see how it goes. All right, well, great. Um, I appreciate that. And I certainly wouldn't fact check these hands, say that I'm an expert on Reformed Baptist. Okay, my interaction with Reformed has been with the Reformed Pentecostal. I mean, Reformed Pentecostal. I don't think there's such a thing. With Reformed uh, Presbyterian Church. And I know there's differences in those as well. And there's differences in the different kind of Baptist churches there are. And when you when you talk to someone who's Reformed Baptist, they'll rattle off to you which confessions they believe in, and they'll, they'll just go through the whole nine yards. So to them, it's something that's much different than someone like me, who grew up in Calvary Chapel and believes the Word of God, grew up spiritually in Calvary Chapel. I grew up in the Methodist Church, but I grew up spiritually in Calvary Chapel and just believes the Word of God and don't put a lot of, of um, stock into trying to, to identify myself with certain confessions or groups or schools or any of those things, which a lot of times these different uh, these different groups will. And maybe they have to because they're like, I'm Baptist. Well, what kind of Baptist are you? And there's so many different kind of Baptists. Maybe they have to. Where if I say I'm Calvary Chapel, pretty much people who know are familiar with Calvary Chapel know what we are all about. So so maybe they have to. Okay, but I do um, I do appreciate you uh, sharing that information, and I'm really glad. And I hope, fact check these hands, that you are really, really blessed at that church. I hope that God uses it and that you're really blessed and it can become something uh, that is very powerful. All right, so um, again, good to see all of you guys that are here. I'm uh, just taking some time now to go through uh, the different comments and to see if we have any questions. Um, Jari has a follow-up on Psalms 136.15. Not sure what that follow-up is. Um, let's go ahead and take a look, all right? So follow-up. So we're gonna try to figure out what Jari's follow-up question is. So we're gonna go to Psalms. One thirty-six, right? Yep, 136.15, 136.15. Once I get it up here, I'll put it up on the screen. And we will take a look. All right. So thanks, Jari, for throwing up this follow-up. So it is a passage. It says, but he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Well, there it is. For his faithfulness is everlasting to him who led his people through the wilderness. His faithfulness is everlasting. Awesome, Jari. Thank you. Great find. So uh, the earlier question that we were asked was Pharaoh destroyed in the sea um, but he overthrew Pharaoh in the Red Sea. That's the, that's the NASB. Let's go to the New King James. Uh, oops, where am I at? What did I do? Why did I do that? Let's go back to Psalms 136, 15. Sorry to do that while you guys are watching. All right, um, but I want to go here and I want to change it back. I want to look at the NIV really quick. Um, but he swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. So, I mean, this looks pretty strong. I was going to say, I was going to say, Jari, that maybe people could throw Pharaoh in there when they're saying um, he, he overthrew Pharaoh and the army in the Red Sea, that Pharaoh was overthrown by the army being overthrown in the Red Sea. However, I mean, when you start looking at these different translations, he swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. It seems that Pharaoh was destroyed with him. Um, for further study, for sure, 
okay? Because looking at a couple of verses doesn't give you all the answers that you want, but um, that's some great information, Jari, all right? We have a question from Kimberly, and thank you for doing that. I really appreciate that, and I encourage more of that. If you guys look and find a passage that adds light to what we're talking about, um, then I just think that's awesome. It's it's a good thing. This becomes kind of a, a, a working um, breakout session when we can do it together to try to figure out what the Word of God says. So um, Empress Kimberly says, question mark, um, AC arrival in Revelation, Antichrist's arrival in Revelation 6, seems to be an impersonating Jesus's return in Revelation 19. Many will fo- follow him due to wrong teaching. Is this division in the church that causes the great deception in 2 Thessalonians 2.9? Let's go to the 2 Thessalonians 2.9 passage here, Kimberly, and let's, let's look at that. Um, yeah, hey, look, I taught this last week, right? I taught Revelation 6, 1 and 2, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, last week. And it's definitely the Antichrist and not Jesus. And, but I've gotten a lot of people who have left, I've gotten people that have left comments. I won't say a lot of people have left comments. People have comments saying that it's Jesus. Um, and the reason that some people say it's Jesus is because all millennialism and post-millennialism see the four horsemen as being released immediately when John when John in his vision saw the, the torn, they, they were, aren't looking for the worst time that this world will ever see. To them, those statements, they, they encompass all of eternity. Now, you have to do a lot of um, metaphors and analogies to get there because the Bible says at the end of days, there will be a time that is worse than anything this world will ever see. So you got to kind of to get there. But to them, they want to see the white horse coming out and represent Jesus conquering, especially post-millennialism, um, which believes that the, that the nations of the world are going to be controlled by Christians. Christians are going to Christianize the entire world. The whole world is going to be controlled by Christians. And Jesus has gone out to conquer and conquering. But remember, the, the crown that the, white, the, the rider of the white horseman has on his head is a wreath. It's a temporary crown. He has a bow in his hand. When Jesus returns, he has a sword in his hand, and it's covered in the blood of his enemies. And it also says these, in, in chapter 8, were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill them with war and death, and it tells the things that it could kill them with, pestilence, those things. So it wouldn't make sense to have the first writer be Christ, to be followed by war and pestilence or or economic collapse and death. The four horsemen are are bad. It doesn't make sense to have three of them bad and one of them good without something giving them to you. They are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, And so we were going to take a look here, uh, Kimberly, at the lie that's given. And this is 2 Thessalonians 2.9. And I've got that up here. Let's go ahead and look at it on the screen here. It says, um, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with Satan's work. He will use all sorts of displays and power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of speculation about the lie, hasn't there? Um, Some believe the lie is evolution. 
Some believe the lie is um, the taking of a, a, a life in the womb, um, a lie that's given them. And um, God talks about that lie or that delusion that gets sent out there as well. So your question, Antichrist arrives in, in Revelation 6 seems to be an impersonating, yeah, he's an imposter. Jesus returns in Revelation 19, many will follow him due to the wrong teaching. Is this the division of the church, the cause of the great deception? I don't know the falling away, what I think is the falling away mentioned earlier in here in 2 Thessalonians, I believe well, it happens before the tribulation period and the Antichrist comes out during the tribulation period. So let me go ahead and go back to this again and I'll show you this. We're just gonna start in verse one. It says, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now, that's the return of Christ and the gathering together of his saints. And this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, where there is a resurrection and then some who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. The Apostles' Creed and other early creeds said Jesus was returning to judge the living and the dead. And then it goes on to say uh, in verse 2, not to be easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us or by prophecy or word of mouth or letter um, asserting that the day of the Lord had already come. So they thought they were in the tribulation period, that the day of the Lord had already come and they were living in it. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Remember, the Antichrist is a huge deceiver. Deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, this is the NIV, and it uses the word rebellion. That's the word apostasia. I want to go back to the New King James because it uses the word falling away, unless the falling away comes first. Some believe that to be the rapture of the church, but, but the word apostasia seems to be that falling away. And we do know that in the last days, men are going to become lovers of themselves. They're going to heap, heap up teachers who will tickle their ears. And, um, and that comes first. So the falling away comes first. So this apostasia comes before the tribulation period, and then the man of sin is revealed. It doesn't say the man of sin has to come first before the tribulation period. It just says he will be revealed. The only thing that has to come first here is the falling away. And we can read it again just to make it clear. Let no one deceive you by any means that the day will not come unless the fallen away comes first, the man of sin is revealed, and the man of sin is revealed. So that's the beginning of the tribulation period. That's why the white horse with the temporary crown, the Stephanos, is the Antichrist. And uh, Jesus will return at the end of the age. And Jesus doesn't ride out in as one of the four horsemen into the apocalypse. All right, it just doesn't make sense in any way, shape, or form. But um, good information, uh, Kimberly. Um, could it lead to it? Maybe. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. I think it is very possible. All right. So um, let's see. Uh, all right. So Keith put up the teaching that I did on grief in Albuquerque. The links there, so you can click on that and you can watch that there. Uh, mm maybe a year ago or so I was there and I taught that. So it's probably, it, it is definitely the newest of the teachings that I have on how to handle grief. All right. Um, so fact check these hands has a follow-up uh, to the Reformed Baptist. I take it. Follow-up. The church is having membership classes tomorrow. I'm going so I can learn more about and ask. I hopefully have a good idea 
of what they're uh, about afterwards. Thanks. Good. And you could kind of fill us in there. Um, fact check these hands because I would like to know. Um, is it just because they have the word reformed in their name? Does that believe, mean they believe in reformed theology? Reformed theology would be Calvinism. Uh, there are a few other things that they would also believe in millennialism. They wouldn't believe in premillennialism. So there'd be a few other things they believe. And fact check these hands. You can ask it. You can ask in a positive way. You don't have to be like, uh, do you guys believe in the horrible teaching of Augustine on the reform? You can, don't, don't have to ask that way. You can simply say, Reformed Baptist, does that mean you guys believe in Reformed theology? And you could ask it that way to find out what it is. That way you're not kind of supposing a question before or after when you ask it. So um, thank you very much for that follow-up. And I'm really interested in hearing from you the next time that, we, uh, that we're together, all right, on what they said, okay? So let's see, we have a question from Cara Sanchez. Um, she says, someone asked, a, can, uh, can you still smoke and be a Christian? All right, Cara, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an interpretation of your question. This is why, and I don't want to use you as an example, Cara, sorry, but this is why we read it and reread it. So we, when we submit it, we, it's saying what we think it says. Someone asked, asked, can you still be a Christian and still smoke? That's what you're asking. Uh, yeah, the Bible never says don't roll up tobacco leaves or any kind of leaves into a, a wrapping paper or a, a, a rolling paper, light it on fire and suck the fumes of the leaves into your lungs. It never says don't do that. So can someone do that and be, and be a Christian? Yes. Is it good for you? No. But... Do I want to specifically just follow what the Word of God says and not go with culture? Culture today says smoking is bad, and less and less people are smoking both overseas and here, although they do smoke more overseas than here. Um, it would be good for you not to smoke. That's bad for you in a lot of different ways. Um, it's bad for your arteries. It could cause strokes. It can cause lung cancer. There's so many things that are bad, um, but hey, we have people that go to the church and afterwards they go outside around the corner of the church and they light up a cigarette. And I'm not, I, in my mind, I don't think, man, they're not really Christians. Uh, I just pray for them that they would give that up. And I kind of like the fact that they don't hide it, that they're not going, you know, this is, this is unacceptable to the church. It's just one of those areas that's a gray area. Charles Spurgeon used to smoke um, cigars and people in his day challenged him, and he said, um, someone asked him, do you think that smoking cigars in excess is a sin? And he said, yes. And they said, well, when is it in excess? And he said, when you have a cigar in each hand. Now, obviously, that was a joke. There's also this famous account of D.L. Moody meeting Charles Spurgeon. D.L. Moody was an untrained preacher, and he was always trying to learn more from people. And he went to go, went over to England and ended up bringing revival with him. He, he went over there to learn and grow so he could be a better pastor, but he ended up bringing revival over there. The story goes that when he went to meet Charles um, Spurgeon, he knocked on the door and Spurgeon opened up the door with a cigar in his hand. And Spurgeon took a step back. In fact, the extreme story says he fell down off the stoop. And when he got up, he said, how can you be a Christian and smoke a cigar? 
And Charles Spurgeon, it said, went over and patted him on the stomach and said, how can you be so fat and still be a Christian? And so those two different ideas about what's acceptable and not acceptable. So I would never make it an issue. I would never make it an issue. I might talk to someone who I know who's a good friend. I might, I might say, is that really healthy for you? So can you smoke and still be saved? Yes. What would, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no scripture that would tell you you can't smoke and still be saved. And if anybody taught such a thing, that would be massively legalistic. Okay. So we have a question from Walter. While Walter asked a question about a certain pastor, uh, could you invite Pastor Brandon uh, Hothhouse to come out and speak to the church about the culture and the last day's prophecy? He has a lot to say. All right. Yeah, I don't know him. I'm not familiar with him at all, but I'll take a look and see. Um, I'll look him up and see what we see, what we find out. All right. But I do appreciate, Walter, your question on that. Always uh, uh, always appreciate those who give suggestions as to someone who may be able to come out and minister uh, to the body. All right. So, Tim, yeah, thank you, Tim. I understand it. Um, and I will be praying for you. And I, I do understand what you're going through. And it just don't expect it to be over quickly. Take some time. Grieve fully. You'll be the healthiest if you take time and really go through the grieving, not trying to escape the grieving. All right. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, let's see. So I'll just go through here and see if we have any more uh, any more questions. All right. All right, so it looks like the end of our questions and it's about time for us to be done. So um, good to see you guys. Good to have you here with us today. I appreciate the questions that you've asked. Um, we will have another Q&A on Wednesday. We look forward to um, looking to the Word of God to see what kind of answers that we can find from what the Word of God says. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. That service is uh, we're going to be talking about the Christians on the Emmaus Road. And there's some great things we learned from these guys um, on the Emmaus Road. We're almost done with the book of Luke, a couple more studies, and uh, we'll be covering uh, that tonight. All right, so it's good to see you guys. Thank you for being a part of, of, of what we're doing here. And we will see you guys. If you're here for the first time, welcome. And we will see you on Wednesday from 3 to 4. We'll have another Q&A. All right, good to see you guys. Love you. And we'll see you later on. I'm out.